What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. See, I am Wonder Finn, and I'd like to say hello. Say hello, Finn. To the black, to the white, the red, and the brown, the purple, and yellow. Five jocks cruising for chicks, rapping along to the Sugar Hill Gang. Anna Kendrick, where are you when I need you? A clip there from Richard Linklater's 80s set, Everybody Wants Some, the so-called spiritual sequel to Linklater's Dazed and Confused. Can we stop referring to this thing as a spiritual sequel yet? Done. Linklater's first since boyhood comes with big expectations, expectations that were perhaps unfairly diminished some by a trailer that made it look like a dumb sex comedy. Now that makes it sound like you don't love dumb sex comedies, Adam. I'm a child of the 80s. Who am I kidding? Our review plus the top five Linklater scenes and Film Spotting Madness final four results. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. This week's show is supported by film spotting listeners like Silver Club donor Douglas in Chicago, new $5 a month donor Jeremy here in Chicago, and our gold level donor Andrew in Lake Oswego, Oregon. Josh, this is the guy who sent us beer in the mail and a nice letter, which we will feature on next week's show. We could use some fresh beer around yeah, here. we definitely That's could. stale stuff you brought in. One more donor to mention. A new $5 a month donation comes from Brian in Providence, Rhode Island. Just gladly signed on for a $5 monthly donation. I've only been listening for a few years, all the Josh era. Film spotting is what inspired me to step up my film knowledge, to become a regular patron of both small local theaters and the big guys, and even join the cast of a now-defunct movie podcast of my own with another film spotting listener, who's a crazy person who started going through the film spotting archives and is still likely years from being caught up. But it was the spirit of film spotting madness that made me realize that the time was now to pay up. I did the podcast theater test, so to speak. I imagined a theater in which every podcast I love has a new episode out. In that scenario, I'm always going with film spotting first. So here's to many, many more years of insightful and entertaining film talk. P.S. Thanks for being so responsive on social media. It feels great to be a part of the conversation. It's great to have you as part of the conversation, Brian. And I love that test. I should apply that test myself to all the podcasts mm-hmm. I listen to. And we are happy to top your list. Thank you, Brian, Jeremy, Andrew, Douglas, and everyone else who donated this week. You're listening to Film Spotting. Josh, I'm guessing that Richard Linklater probably doesn't care that he lost David Fincher in the Sweet 16 round of Film Spotting Madness, but we're going to try to make it up to him anyway with our top five Linklater scenes. I just hope that the next time I get a chance to interview him, if that ever comes up again, he'll be so impressed with the top five. He'll say, guys, you know what? Call me Rick. That, that, that's how you know you're in. <laughs> I want to be one of those Rick. guys. I know. It does indicate that you have the end card. Yeah, we'll see. Plus, your Film Spotting Madness Championship matchup later in the show. But first, though, Adam and I are going to perform our own version of Rapper's Delight. Well, eh, second thought, let's just review Everybody Wants Some. I didn't quite feel the two exclamation points there, Josh. This ain't high school, man. You had a new level here. You have not earned teammate status yet. Who the hell are you? Oh, uh, Jake Bradford. And until you do, you're nobody. Yeah? Yeah. Bye. I'd like to introduce you to the new guys. Two rules. No booze in this house. Number two, no girls upstairs in those bedrooms. I'm seriously worried about these new guys. Play a good game, man. Jake, Jake, Jake. 
we have a little tradition welcoming the new guys. Freshman batting practice! Welcome to the big time, boys. Josh, man. You ever wonder what you'd be doing if you weren't doing this show? Or what if you never got into movies at all? Like, maybe you had a really good baseball coach in high school, and he inspired you to practice baseball all the time. And you were driven, man. D-R-I-V-I-N. You put everything you had into playing ball. Because the field was the one place where you felt alive. Like you were really yourself, you know? Not who your parents or teachers or friends wanted you to be. Then when you went off to college, your dorm was this house with a bunch of other baseball players. And you didn't have a plan. You're just letting the experience find you. Going to bars, drinking, partying, picking up as many chicks as you possibly can. Saying yes to whatever you stumble upon, man. Because you're opening yourself up to the world. Trying to see what feels right. Where you fit. But man, you didn't make those choices, did you? That's another reality, an alternate dimension. In this dimension... You're watching this dude on a movie screen. You're sitting there, scribbling your notes, judging away. Well, all the big questions in life, the answers are floating out to you, dangling amidst the casual conversations and mundane moments the camera is capturing, summoning you to snatch them from the ethereal void. If only you have the peace and presence of mind to snatch them. Did you snatch them, Josh? (laughs) It would take... A lot of balling hits for that to register as a Richard Linklater scene. <laughs> I'm sorry, Adam. Dang it. I think I got the beer and everything. Yeah, yeah. I think you might have misspelled driven too in there. <laughs> but maybe worthy attempt. And I would love it if that was a preface to just a takedown of everybody wants some. Because uh-huh. that was a pretty good spoof of what a lot of this movie is. I have a gut feeling that you still loved it. And you oh, still man. really went for it. But really? man, that's it. You raise a good question I didn't think of is, is Linklater maybe at a point here where uh, he's getting a little easy for self-parody? No. Um, because Everybody Wants Some hits a lot of those dazed and confused beats. Yeah. And not just in the comedy or in the period setting or the aesthetic of nostalgia, but also in the philosophical musings. You know, it, it winds those right into the comedy and the, it is, you know, it is on one level, a college sex comedy. So (laughs) I love that. Thank you for that. That was quite enjoyable. Um, What's your question again? Yeah, see, there you go. I couldn't give you any hint where I was going either. I just need you to take it in. Yeah. So you got nothing. What do you want to know? Am I, am I? You know what, honestly? make me regret life choices? No, Uh, I just want to know if you liked it. I want to know if you liked the movie. I did like it. It was fun. I mean, you know, Linklater has a way of elevating this sort of material so that it not only captures the cliched bits of this sort of college experience, but mines them for something more and something relatable to, and hopefully we'll find out what listeners think, to people who didn't have this sort of college experience either, whether it's not playing on a sports team, not getting into the party life, not going to a bigger public school. I think that's going to be an interesting question for this film is how relatable was it? Because that's what so many people say about Dazed and Confused, right? Is, oh man, it took me back to high school, even if you didn't go to high school in the Mm -hmm. 70s. Will people say the same thing? I think the culture has shifted quite a bit. And I'm really curious to hear how women take to this film in particular, not because I think it's necessarily problematic in any way. As a matter of fact, I think it's 
rather nuanced on careful look in mm-hmm. how it handles the dynamics at work here. But this is definitely, I mean, this is a portrait of a bro as a young man is what it is in today's terms. And it's almost this anthropological study of those sorts of dynamics, mm-hmm. uh, male friendships, specifically athletic male friendships and how they work. And like I said, I think it has some interesting things to say about that. I don't know if you didn't live and breathe that and still to some degree want to live and breathe that if this movie might not get a little tiresome. For me, this was never really my crowd. I I played organized sports as a student, but this wasn't sort of the crowd I ran with. Mm -hmm. And so to a degree, spending this much time with them, I I had had my fill by the end. So I'll be curious to hear how other people feel about that. But I do think it's a fun film. I think it manages to do well those things that Linklater does throughout. It's a continuation of his Dow of Linklater, which we should get into, is this philosophy of life that the guy has that you captured pretty well in your <laughs> opening there, where then it's my work just is done. suspicion of authority, right, is one thing. It's the elevation of the individual. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the pursuit of artistic freedom as well, individual yeah. freedom, artistic freedom. All of that is here. Again, the question may be, is it getting a little old in some ways or a little played out? Obviously not for you. No, not for me at all. And I'm with you that this certainly wasn't really my crowd in high school or college either, though thinking back to my freshman year in college, certainly I had a set of friends on a floor that was probably considered pretty jockey, at least for my college and that dorm and that floor. But compared to these guys, nothing, but we still exhibited a lot of the same types of behavior in terms of the competitiveness. Mm -hmm. And we were not as witty as these guys, or should I say Richard Linklater writing the lines for them, but we certainly were trying to bust on each other all the time. So he gets a lot of that right, or I felt like he got a lot of that right. And you are correct when you mentioned the difference between this and Dazed and Confused is that there were a lot more characters ultimately in Dazed and Confused. I feel like although we had some main characters, the Jason London character, I guess, Randall, you could say, is kind of the protagonist. Probably, yeah. Nevertheless, you could find a lot of different ways into that. And here you are mostly with the baseball team. So if they're not your thing, you might get tired of them. I never did. And there's a lot of reasons why some of it comes down to simply the performances and the types of personalities he captures. I mean, the one character at the end of this film, Finn, who kind of becomes the mentor figure to Jake, who's the main character in this film. He is played by Glenn Powell. I wanted to be Glenn Powell's friend. Yeah. Best friend for life, Josh. I mean, that's how much I enjoyed every moment he was on screen. You mentioned some of these beats maybe feeling a little played out, or maybe even at some point it could become self-parody. I never did see it that way, and I think part of it is, especially preparing for this top five, you look back on movies like Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, and Midnight. Obviously, those movies are a trilogy. You expect them to have certain through lines through all three movies, but those through lines run through all of his films, and this felt like something that just simply belonged in the same universe as dazed and confused. We said we weren't going to use that phrase anymore, but whatever you want to call it, it felt like an extension of that movie in a way that never felt like it was being derivative at all, but as if they were calling on each other and asking you as a viewer to think about them in a similar way. There's a moment, there are lots of moments where you could go back and think directly of dazed and confused in terms of the the style of this movie and the ensemble, but there's one shot in particular where Jake walks out of the woods into a party scene and he 
could have been walking out of the woods scene in Dazed and Confused. It felt almost like Linklater was setting it up as if to say, yeah, he was there. Or if he wasn't there, he was there in spirit. Now we're ahead four or five years, but he's just walking out of that party and walking into this party. And there was something about that that got me just as giddy as watching Jesse and Celine nine years separated from each other. So Jake is played by Blake Jenner, and I think he's he's a really nice audience surrogate here. This incoming mm-hmm. freshman, new pitcher who's going to join the team, and he has the confidence that a recruited college athlete would have, but I don't think the cockiness yet, you know, he's, he's willing to settle into his place in this house and with these teammates. And, uh, yeah, as an actor, Jenner just has a really nice presence that works well for this film. So he definitely is someone you want to spend time with. You want to watch, go on some sort of journey. And and maybe that's one question we can explore. I think as far as the bro-ness goes, he does go on an important journey from how to fit in with this, a word that's used early on, I forget which character, is tribal. Oh, man, I that's, think that's the key word for me. Yeah, yeah. I think they're referring in that scene to the different factions on campus. Yes. But man, this goes back to me thinking of this as an anthropological study. That is so perfect. It because is. Because this is a tribe that has its, um, you know, its gestures. These guys are always in motion. They're they're never at rest. Yep. You know, and, and I, it made me think watching this film... When it comes to to men in particular, maybe, is the ability to remain still a sign of maturity, perhaps? <laughs> like once you get to a point in your life yeah. where you can you can be content being still, have you grown up? Because these guys are always moving. They're drinking, they're pounding beer, they're playing ping pong, they're dancing, they're cruising. So they'll even, you know, they'll go practice too. But for them, it's not like that's their activity. It's just another mode of activity, which is how they live. So that's one distinct element of their tribe. Mm -hmm. And there are other ways that they communicate. This is a Linklater film, so there are tons of conversations. But I think maybe my favorite one is after two characters. This is the team star, McReynolds, played by Tyler Hoechlin. And then the team's wound up weirdo, (laughs) Niles, played by Justin Street. So they have this on-field confrontation A little bit later in the scene, they're standing next to each other by the dugout, and Niles comes up to McReynolds and just says, good head. McReynolds responds, we're cool. We're cool. And I think there might even be one of those platonic butt pats, too. There is, Because yeah. there's another tribal yeah, gesture. Yeah, Jay goes back right? for it, yeah. <laughs> and that is that just captures uh, what's at play here and how this group communicates with each other. So watching all of that is, you know, both familiar to a degree, mm-hmm. being a guy, and also fascinating when it's just pursued to such intensity right. in this athletic scenario. So let me go back to Dazed and Confused. And one distinction that I find interesting is that this seems to be almost a more positive spin on coming into adulthood than Mm -hmm. Dazed and Confused. I sensed an uneasiness in Dazed and Confused, a melancholy, just not sure about, even though they're ready to move on from high school, about what lies ahead. Mm -hmm. And everybody wants some is just really a good time. Mm -hmm. And this is maybe where I wonder if, you know, played out is too strong of a word. But I think what I love about this Linklater philosophy, this worldview of pursuing your own identity, and here it's the challenges to find your own identity within a tribe. What does that mean? But I wonder if it's more interesting when that runs up against the realities of maturity and adulthood, which is something that happens in the Before Trilogy, Mm -hmm. and it's something that happens in Boyhood. So here, we don't really get that friction. These guys are there having a good time. 
And that's yeah, mostly it. So I think if there's something missing for me, maybe it's that other element that Linklater at his best manages to weave in as well. It's funny you say that, though, because I was thinking as well that it's like Dazed and Confused in that there really is nothing that would strike us as an obvious plot conflict right, in either film. And so that speaks to what you're saying about how this doesn't really have any friction. It doesn't. There isn't really any grand lessons learned over the course of this film. If you think about the character he is at the beginning, Jake, and the character he is at the end, he doesn't go on a huge journey, certainly doesn't have any grand revelations along the way. And that seems in keeping with Linklater overall. And so I was just happy to be along for the ride with these guys. I really was. And you nailed it when you talked about the tribes here, because where it really hit me, it actually hit me early on, of course, when you see the way that the ballplayers do interact with each other and going back again to Dazed, where we have things like the air raid scene and we've got O'Banion with the paddle. There are all these customs and rituals and traditions and rules that you can or can't break. That movie is filled with them. And then we get to this film and we see some of those same things play out, like the fact that at one point, a couple of Jake's new baseball player buddies, catch hanging up in his closet his second-team All-State letter jacket. And that's just one of those things that, you know what? You've moved on to college now. You're not the hero you were in high school. You do something like that, you're going to get busted for it. And I think what struck me here is the way Linklater was capturing, and what you were saying about how there's not much friction, he's an older, more mature filmmaker now. There's a part of me that wonders, especially as this film strikes me from what I know about him, is probably his most autobiographical. He Mm -hmm. was a ball player. I think this Jake character is very much meant to be him at a time in his life when he turned over a little bit more to the artistic side. It's not about friction because it's this mature filmmaker looking back on his life and exploring this very positive time in his life. He doesn't really yeah, have any, season yeah, anything yeah. negative to say about it. And so some of the things I was thinking about as I was watching it is just this is the time you think maybe high school is it. But even this year here, this transitional year as a freshman in college and the characters who are now juniors and seniors even are kind of stuck in this stasis. It's the time before life really begins, before you have to make some of those adult decisions and go out into the quote-unquote real world. And so you get a line at one point, like the one McReynolds, the stud baseball player, has where he says to someone chiding him, come on, make this the best day of my life until tomorrow. That sense for these guys, you know what, they wake up every day, the world is just there for them. They're only going to get that. They're only going to have that type of confidence and bravado and optimism probably only during these four years of your life. Or until they lose their first game because yeah. how that ping pong match goes no, that's really true. badly when McReynolds loses. That's that's another great moment capturing the other side of competitive natures. For sure. And this is also that time in their lives, the only time any of us probably have to still really, truly define yourself and seek out who you want to be. When else can you move in and out of these categories? And where it really crystallized for me was in that little bit of bar hopping they do, Mm -hmm. where they start, of course, at their disco bar, which isn't the scene that we would expect them to go to based on the fact that it's the end of the 70s and they're clearly listening to rock and roll Mm -hmm. and they're in Texas, so there's some country, but they go to the disco bar because that's where they get the drinks and that's where they find the women. When that's not working, Where do they go? The country bar. Guess what? The country bar has its same rituals and customs and rules that you can or can't break. And then where do they end up from there? At some point, they end up at the punk Punk bar. bar, And that's where it did really hit me that you see a character, they call him Coma. 
in this movie. And at some point you do realize why they call him that name. And I love that Linklater gives us the one shot where he's against going into this punk bar from the beginning. He doesn't even want to go onto the porch of the house where these punk kids are hanging out. They're just not his crew. The other guys like Jake are a little more open right. to experiencing this, seeing where willing it takes to cross them. tribes. They are willing to cross the tribe. They go in to this bar later. This band's playing. They're basically in a mosh pit. And Linklater does give us the shot, the hilarious shot of Coma in the corner, still looking around like he's going to die. You know, like what is going on? <laughs> I'm not ready. His shirt. Right. But he is not ready to quite embrace this yet. And so these characters are still figuring out what lines they're prepared to cross and what lines they're not prepared to cross. And in fact, Josh, my only quibble with the Linklater in this movie comes really in that scene. There are a few other instances of it, but this is where it was most pronounced to me. It's in this scene at the punk bar where... Look, Linklater has made a career being a guy, going back to Slacker, who's never spelled things out too much. And again, watching this punk scene, seeing the progression of the different clubs they're going to, and think about how music specifically is used to signify Mm -hmm. these different tribes— this is all congealing in my head. I know exactly what I'm going to say to you when I'm talking about this movie. And at that moment where that's hitting me, Jake turns to Finn and says something like, us being here begs the question. Yeah. And he yeah. proceeds to then have a dialogue with him about it. And he does basically spell it out. That was the moment where it was as if Linklater, and I certainly don't believe for a second this is consciously what he was considering. It's as if he thought to himself, audiences these days aren't going to let me get away with too many Animal House antics and a thousand uses of the word pussy unless I have a character almost wink at the camera and say, I know you're thinking this is all really juvenile, but something more profound is going on, and I just want you to know, I know what you're thinking. He needs that character. He seemingly needed that character in that moment to let us all off the hook a little bit, and I really wish he hadn't. I think there are probably a couple of scenes that there are something similar, Mm -hmm. and it's hard because he's also such a great screenwriter of conversation and dialogue and debate and discussion that you want to allow him, you want to follow and listen to those. They're so natural. Mm -hmm. And... College kids are going to have these philosophical discussions, right? Right. And so there's a delicate line there of where is that a natural conversation between people who are drinking a lot of beer, smoking a lot of pot, and when is it trying to wedge in, here's what I'm trying to say here, about people finding their way Mm -hmm. and finding their identity. But you're right in describing the experience it's trying to capture here. I mean, this this freshman year or even for the upperclassmen, you know, maybe sophomore, maybe junior – They've got a reprieve on adulthood, Mm -hmm. right? They've got a reprieve on maturity. They don't really have to worry about that. The one thing I like about McReynolds is that you can sense a little bit of, he's a pro prospect. Mm -hmm. And so you sense a little bit of that breathing down his neck. And maybe he brings in what I was looking for now that I think about it, a sense of this, that responsibility is going to come no matter what. You know where else it is, which is a great touch. I love how there's the on-screen text counting down the hours and days hours until to class, class begins. Yes. Yeah. Because it's like that. Because even within this magical time, there are still some deadlines. They're going to have to pay the dealer at right. some point. Let's go back to what you were talking about in terms of Jake. So you're totally right in that there isn't a lot of friction. That's what I was getting at too. Uh, there isn't any real challenge here. But I think there is something of a journey that I hope people will see as a counter to the accusations you were talking about, where people are going to say, aren't we past Porky's or, mm-hmm. or whatever? Because the movie is, you know, really right there for much of its first third with the parties and the women they're chasing, how right. they talk about them and how they treat them. And I can see people being a little troubled by that. But I think Jake is the person to follow in how 
he does grow out of that to a degree, but not in a way so that it becomes preachy or unbelievable. I mean, a kid in his first week at college is not going to suddenly learn how to respect women if he... In 1980. In 1980. No. But I think the fact that he does meet a performing arts student named Beverly, played by Zoe Deutsch, and they begin to have what could legitimately be called a relationship, (laughs) which, you know, is, is not maybe groundbreaking, but as you were pointing out, at this time in this context, it does feel groundbreaking. It feels like a step for Jake and an important one for a movie that's going to behave this way in this day and age. Yeah. Well, I think, too, it would have been very easy for Linklater to go back and sanitize this in a way that showed audiences, well, it's 1980, but, you know, I've learned from my mistakes and I'd love for you to believe that this is how it really was. But he doesn't do that. I don't think he goes too far with it, making it so raunchy that I think it's going to offend necessarily a lot of people. But at the same time, he doesn't really pull any punches either. He makes it feel of its time. And despite the fact that it really does focus on these baseball players who, going back to how we started this discussion... Whether or not we really relate to them or not, or we were ever like that, or we wanted to be like that, or maybe we were constantly in fear of those types of people to an extent, the overall themes that you've touched on, Josh, as well, are universal. This sense of finding who you are, discovering yourself in this time when you can still do that, and moving in and out of these tribes, everybody had that experience in college. I love, too, the way Linklater uses the camera here. And we talked about this with Boyhood. We talked about it with Before Midnight, how maybe he doesn't get enough credit as a stylist because he's not ostentatious in what he does with the camera. And that's the case here as well. And you go back to the beginning of this film. It's Jake walking into his house, meeting his new teammates. And it very easily could have been, and it might have been breathtaking had he done it, but it could have been this sort of long take seven minute sequence or whatever where we have a steady cam following Jake through every room and up the stairs. Linklater doesn't do that, but he still captures it in a way that completely pulls off the exact same effect of getting the entire lay of the house, yeah. knowing where each character is, what each character is all about, all just in a matter of a few minutes. And there's a real gracefulness to it that I think is reflected in a lot of the scenes here in the way he uses some of the overhead shots. We see those in Dazed and Confused as well when there's a party scene at one of these bars that just shows all these people in this space all being comfortable in this space together. And I got the sense, don't know this for sure, but I got the sense watching some of those scenes in the bars where the characters are really in their element and they're cracking on each other and having a good time. It felt so seamless, despite all the cuts. It was as if he must have shot it with multiple cameras. That's the vibe you get, where it wasn't a bunch of coverage, let's do a master shot, and then we'll do the close-ups and the -the over-the-shoulders. It's as if there were maybe three cameras running all the time, kind of capturing these tribes, capturing the members of these tribes in their element. Let me ask you about an interesting single-take scene that he does use later on. It's in the locker room. I think they're about to go out for their first practice. Mm -hmm. And they're setting up this prank on the guys who come late. Yeah, Buter's entrance. Won't, yeah, we won't, won't give it away. What was interesting about yeah. that, though, is the effect of the single take for me usually is heightening tension. You know, mm-hmm. I, you don't get you don't get a break. You don't get to take that Absolutely. millisecond pause. Mm-hmm. So I thought Buter is a character 
portrayed as kind of a hayseed guy. He's immediately the one they decide they're all going to pick on. Mm -hmm. Okay, like really pick on, which again, this could be an issue of how do you be true to how that would have gone down and not try to sanitize it, yet make it in a day and age where there's so much talk about bullying and hazing, Mm -hmm. right? So a tricky thing he's going to try to do here. And with this single take, up until that point, this bullying isn't even really considered. This is just part of the fun, right? And Buter, played by Will Britton, takes it this way, too. It's part of the comedy. And because of the single take, I thought that might have gone somewhere differently than it does. It essentially just deflates as more laughs. Mm-hmm. Did th- did you, did that throw you off a little bit too? <laughs> well, a funny story. I had in my notes, Buter's entrance. Uh-huh. And until you just brought it up, I didn't know why I wrote that down. Because and it's you were because of that. Something. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was yeah. expecting something a little bit more maybe from it, but I still liked the ease with which the camera moved in that locker room. Yeah. Yeah, you know? it's just, it does stand out for Linklater because yeah. he doesn't do that sort of thing very often. All right, let me ask you, we mentioned him earlier, the Niles character played by Justin Street. Mm-hmm. He's this like over the top. He's a raw he's dog. Got, he's, yeah, <laughs> he's got a great nickname, which I forget, does he, he gives himself essentially, yeah, right? He calls himself a raw dog. But the huge 80s glasses, mm-hmm. the bowl cut, you know, the short shorts, tight. He's, he's super confident. He does have a certain degree of talent. He's one of the more talented guys on the team, but just a loon, right? A complete a loon. loon. Did he have too much Wooderson for you? Oh, no. He didn't have the Wooderson. McConaughey's Wooderson? No, not at all. I felt he was trying to play that part. Not that they're the exact same character. I didn't, mainly because I think there's another Wooderson character in this film, though a little bit more cerebral, and that's the Willoughby character, played by Wyatt Russell. Willoughby's great. And I love him, but he's the philosopher in this who really did make me think of Wooderson. But there are other characters, I think, that fit that bill thin to an extent as well. For me, I didn't see him as that type of character. I did see him as annoying beyond the levels that he needed to be for this film. He just seemed a little outside of the reality that the movie was That's trying it. to create. Truly cartoonish in a yeah. film yeah. where nobody else feels no. that way. Everybody else feels like you walked into a baseball house on this Texas campus in 1980. And here's the thing. I guarantee you Linklater would say, well, I, I lived a with a guy like, like that. Sure, totally. That's how it is. Yeah. Or we can all think about how every group has one and character. I laughed, I laughed at some I of I laughed bits. occasionally. I did. But there were other bits that I did feel like were pushed too far. And there are other loony characters within this group already. I mean, guys who are true space cadets that were already kind of filling that outcast bill. I didn't really feel like we needed as much Jay Niles as we got, unfortunately. But I want to give Linklater credit for this as well. I did not think going into this movie that I would care one way or another about seeing nine guys or more play baseball together. But by making the whole film about baseball and having them talk about baseball as much as they do, by the time we actually do get to see them take the field, and it's not even a game, it's just a practice. But for me, it fits in with Linklater's overall scheme here, where he takes something that absolutely should be mundane and makes it poetic. It could have just been a case where we get the obligatory baseball scenes in a movie about baseball players. But here, somehow, this whole practice sequence is heightened because up to this point, we know them, we feel like we know them so well as people, and we've heard about them so much as ballplayers that I had some legitimate sort of suspense watching those scenes play out to see if they were legit, if they were as legit as they were letting on. And we are then, in the baseball scene, seeing an additional dimension to them of who they are as people. At no point did I feel like we were just watching another baseball practice. It was just another custom that these people engage in. Well, well, really, that's why they're here, right? The, The only reason all of these guys are together in this time and space 
is so at some point they can be on that field. So mm-hmm. yeah, you're curious to see what does that look like. And I think there is another one maybe on the nose scene about, you know, just finding one thing yeah. that you can direct yourself toward mm-hmm. and put all your energies toward and and then you'll you'll be happy, you know? Mm-hmm. Which which also is something a character like that might say. And and speaking of more of the philosophy or the philosophical observations in the film, I thought there was a great one. I'm glad you mentioned Wyatt Russell as Willoughby, the, the pothead so philosopher. Good. He gets something that's offhanded, which is what I really like about it yet captures, I think, what Linklater does best. They're sitting around smoking and discussing music, and he just describes how the song they're listening to works. And he says this, finding the tangents within the framework, yeah. therein lies the artistry. Yeah. And it's perfect for the scene because it makes sense for what he's talking about. Right. But it also It's Linklater applies... justifying his work. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, we talked about boyhood right. in essentially those mm-hmm. terms. So really nice moment from a great character. Yeah. I, I'm just in sync with Linklater, I think, because even at the end of the film, without certainly spoiling anything, there's a conversation about purpose, finding purpose in your life that I think much of what is said is certainly in keeping with my worldview and even, and I use this phrase very loosely, my criticism as I talk about movies here, because obviously as it affects how I view the world and human nature, it's going to seep in. It's certainly going to seep into how I view other people and their takes on the world as well. So I saw that and I just felt even more like there was something about this film and Linklater in particular that I was connecting with. And I'll tell you, Josh, it made me really, really, really regret that I had somehow been one of the guilty parties in expunging Richard Linklater from Film Spotting Madness. Oh, boy. Because it really is all about what have you done for me lately. Had I seen Everybody Wants Some yeah. before voting for Linklater and Fincher in Madness, Linklater would have taken it. I believe it. Well, hey, we sort of had the, the Malick effect to the other way for Knight of Cups a That's little true. bit. So I guess that does happen with Film Spotting Madness. Everybody Wants Some with two exclamation points is currently out in limited release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Speaking of Film Spotting Madness, did my beloved Wes Anderson pull off the upset over the Coen brothers? Down with the tyranny of Josh. Jeez. Was Martin Scorsese able to knock off number one seed Paul Thomas Anderson? We have final four results when we come back. Stay with us. Trust me. 
Welcome back to Film Spotting. So, Josh, about a year ago, in fact, April 17th was the date. We got an email from a longtime listener, Alara Khan in Brooklyn, who implored us to help promote what he was calling, and he alone really was calling Aliens Day. I remember which that. Which he and some friends, we shared it with our audience. And we thought maybe some others would get in on the fun. They were celebrating on April 26th a date chosen in honor of LV-426, the moon where Aliens takes place, of course. 2015 then, that was just the 29th anniversary of Aliens' 1986 release, making this year, of course, the 30th anniversary. And this year, Alaric and his buddies, Josh, they're not alone because Fox and others have gotten a hold of this somehow, whether it was because of Alaric and his prodding or because of something that was heard on the show, I don't know, but There are going to be special Alien Day screenings happening all over the country this year on April 26th. I think he has a lawsuit here. I think he could sue. Seriously, yeah. Including here in Chicago, it's going to be happening at the Music Box Theater. They're going to play James Cameron's Aliens in 70 millimeter that night. Before that, of course, they're going to play Ridley Scott's 1979 Alien not, alas, in 70 millimeter, but still should look glorious up there on the big screen. We thought we would help honor the day by previewing it with a Sacred Cow review of Alien on next week's show. So we're not going with Aliens, which that James Cameron film has been talked about quite a bit here in some recent top fives, going back over the last year or so. It's definitely made a few appearances, but Alien is one that has really only come up, Josh, in the context of that deathmatch, the Ridley Scott deathmatch, Alien versus Blade Runner, and we talked about how we both could use a rewatch of Alien. We're going to get our chance as we prepare for Alien Day, and we've also got some passes to give away to the music box screenings, and this is how we're going to do it. You have to leave us a voicemail if you want the free passes. Admit two passes so you can bring someone with you. All you got to do is call our voicemail number, 312-264-0744, or leave us an MP3. It can be an audio file. You have to give us your best Bill Paxton as Hudson impression from <laughs> Aliens. That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. What the f- are we going to do now? What are we going to do? That's all you got to do is send that to feedback at filmspotting.net or again, call 312-264-0744. You just have to give us a taste even. It doesn't have to be a whole scene. It doesn't have to be a monologue. It could just be five or 10 seconds of Hudson. Speaking of other Chicago screenings, we wanted to remind you that The Man Who Knew Infinity, the true story of a friendship that forever changed mathematics, is coming here to Chicago. It's opening on Friday, May 6th, and there's going to be an advanced screening on Wednesday, April 27th here. Dev Patel and Jeremy Ironstar in that movie were giving away passes over at our website, filmspotting.net. We are also giving away passes to the upcoming John Carney film. John Carney, of course, of Once fame. It is called Sing Street. It opens next weekend, April 22nd, and on Monday night, this coming Monday night, April 18th, there is going to be an advanced screening. And some people, Josh, have already entered. I'm going to throw out a quick disclaimer here. Apparently, no fault of our own, the screening date got changed. So some people have entered. They may have won passes. They think it's on Tuesday night, the 20th. It is not. It is on Monday, April 19th. But this goes back to 1980s Dublin. I am really eager to see the latest from John Carney. Green Room, also opening here in Chicago soon. The latest film from the winner of the Golden Brick for Blue Ruin, Jeremy Sunier. We have passes, Josh, not for an advanced screening, but passes that you can use anytime during its run of event here in Chicago. So who do listeners have to impersonate to get passes to those three films? Anybody? <laughs> no. No. Just, and just email the title of the films. Having seen Green Room, I could give you something to do, but then I might spoil the movie. I don't want to give you any little 
nuggets on the film green room. Everyone needs to just go in with as little as possible and be surprised. But we have those passes and also a good chance for me to tease the fact that I am scheduled to do a phone interview with Mr. Sunye and hope to share that with you on next week's show. But if you want to enter to win any of those passes, just go to filmspotting.net. You will find the links right there in our top stories. Round number 13, the hard luck number. There's the buzzer, and I think you know both the boys. We hear from Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull to get us into Film Spotting Madness, the final four results. Scorsese, our five-seed among the final four, along with Paul Thomas Anderson, Wes Anderson, and the Cohn brothers. We'll get to the results in a second, but to get any potential newcomers up to speed, we started with 32 currently active film spotting favorite directors. Only one gets to live to direct another day. It's like the Hunger Games of made-up movie contests, basically, and we'll get down to the championship match here by the end of this segment. If you want to follow along, you can see the full bracket as it has played out so far at challenge.com slash fsmadness2016. Josh, how do you spell challenge? That would be with an O, Adam. With challenge. an O. Challenge. Challenge.com slash fsmadness2016. The final four, as we mentioned, PTA, Wes Anderson, Scorsese, and the Coen brothers. Ben from Manchester wrote in at this stage, if any of the four remaining directors win, I'll be happy. I voted for all four in every single round thus far, and so for me, it's a little like ranking the Beatles' discography. I love them all, but feel compelled to decide. I like that positivity. Me too. That's a change from where things were going. Yeah, and I don't think we're going to get that kind of diplomacy as we get through these options here. So, matchup number one in the final four was Martin Scorsese versus Paul Thomas Anderson. And we heard from Elijah Davidson in Denver. Without Scorsese, there wouldn't be a Paul Thomas Anderson. And PTA's stylistic homages are no match, not in the past nor in the future, for Marty's restless cinematic ingenuity. Mm, I think I suggested Mm -hmm. a similar point on our last show, even though I voted for PTA. PTA, Kate Fuego. Wow. Kate, it was imaginary, but I thought we had something. I thought we had something really strong. It all comes to an end here? <laughs> Kate says, I know. I just got my honorary co-host card last week, and I'm already risking having it revoked. But I've been listening to Hamilton enough lately to convince me that a girl has to stand up for her unpopular principles, even if it causes her end. Please, please don't do this to me. Don't make me sit through another PTA movie. Don't make me have to endure another three-hour rambling affair where cocaine replaces character development, where women are either topless, dead, or non-existent, where everyone in the frame suddenly appears naked for sheer expletive and giggles. Don't make me watch a movie with cameos by Martin Short and Jenna Malone that bore me. And good God, whatever you do, don't make me have to argue with people on the internet that really all this is significant because the pudding is a metaphor for capitalism or something. I don't know anymore. I don't know anything anymore. I revisited and squinted at every single PTA film to try and figure out what supposed genius I'm missing. And every time, got nothing but a headache and an overwhelming feeling of personal stupidity. This isn't even about Scorsese now. Scorsese's great, but I'd frankly vote for anyone short of Michael Bay to stop this insanity from continuing. The pretension and self-importance of the Paul Thomas Anderson monster must end. Somebody please throw themselves onto this sword with me. Kate, you have not only just had your honorary co-host card revoked, it has been torn up, it has been burned. I, yeah. Can you stand listening to Kate's that? Kate's dead to me. Whoa. She's dead to me. I think she just actually said in so many words, down with the tyranny of Adam. I think so. The Adam monster must end. Ugh. Zach said, uh, sorry I got distracted by Kate's comment. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out whether she was making her case against PTA or Scorsese because topless women, three-hour runtimes, and cocaine inhalation could be used as an argument against either of these two legendary filmmakers. 
The influence the master has had over the student is quite telling. It's true. There's no Paul Thomas Anderson without a Martin Scorsese, just like there's no LeBron without a Kobe or Jordan without a Magic and Bird. Scorsese's high-octane fingerprints are all over PTA's first three films. But eventually, PTA graduated, and he made Punch Drunk Love, a tender and idiosyncratic love story for the ages. It's something I don't think I could ever picture Scorsese making. Anderson followed up Punch Drunk Love with three consecutive masterpieces, all with their own methodical rhythms and tones. Anderson's progression is very clear. The student has become the master. I can't defame Marty. He bleeds pure cinema. All I can say is, if I'm at the theater, my instincts are going to push me through the door marked PTA. And maybe it is really only as simple as identifying with Anderson as the filmmaker of my Mm. generation. Nick M. closes us out. Part of PTA's appeal for me is exactly what turns others off. His films are difficult, aren't necessarily consistently entertaining, and it often feels like you have to physically grapple with them or risk being overwhelmed. But no filmmaker working today makes me want to put in the work, the sheer effort of concentration, observation, and analysis that is required to get the most out of their works as PTA does. Scorsese has his place in cinema secured and his recent efforts have been fine, but PTA emboldens me to believe that film can continue moving in challenging, unconventional directions that encourage a multiplicity of feeling and experience. Take that, Kate. And Kate, you're really going to have to suffer through these results here, Josh, as it wasn't really close. 64% for PTA to 36% for Scorsese. That means PTA advances. Who will he face? Matchup number two, Wes Anderson versus the Coen brothers. Michael in El Cerrito said, maybe I'm a Philistine. Both of these final four choices were among the easiest of the entire tournament for me. It's not that the losing directors aren't high in my honor roll. It's just that my hierarchy in this echelon lines up pretty tightly. Bottom line, I feel like the brothers represent greater mastery of the art and promise more down the road. Check it. Wes Anderson is a genius. I grant this. From his wonderkind rise on, he's literally managed to invent a filmic style all his own. And his movies are hilarious, heartbreaking, and impossible to replicate, though many have tried. But that uniqueness comes at a cost. I appreciate that he's flexed his muscles and shown his range. But Anderson's singularity as an artist reminds me of a sculptor who spends a career employing one unusual medium. A guy who builds cities out of uncooked rice grains, or who uses a paint-dipped needle to create nude portraits of world leaders. No matter how fascinating... By the end of the museum exhibit, I'm always relieved to revisit other artists whose expression is less rigidly couched in technique. Michael says this about the Cones. Their work is a gloriously mixed bag. Character study, caper, expressionistic fantasia, period drama, check, 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 and check. Earnest human interest tales, plenty. Winking cynical satires, more than a few. In the past decade alone, these guys have delivered a half dozen films that would seem like crowning achievements in lesser hands. The Cones may traverse genre and tone with every outing, but they never seem to be faking it. They're fluent filmmakers in every sense, and they work with an unmistakable human touch. Maybe their next movie can be crafted in Anderson's impossibly chic clockwork style, only infused with the sincerity and warmth that structure and set dressing can't produce. I think a lot of people would say their films already have that same type of clockwork style that Wes Anderson's does. Another note here from Jeremy. Movie making by both is, of course, terrific. But the deciding factor for me is the music Wes Anderson has brought to my library. I'm always looking forward to the next gem I'll look up after coming out of one of his films. And I can't think of someone as good at capturing the mood of his characters with the perfect song at the perfect time. So with my vote, in the spirit of March Madness, I'm rejecting the Coen brothers like Herman Bloom swatting the kid shot in Rushmore. (laughs) Ken says, arg. A world in which any of these guys is no longer allowed to make movies is not a world I want to live in. Goodbye, cruel film spotting world. We had a good run. Only the Coen brothers could understand the existential crisis I'm having right now. Why did I vote for Wes Anderson? Why is that tape on your nose? Exactly. We see what you did there, Ken.
Josh LaCrone weighed in too, as I thought about which theater I'd enter. I realized that I was using entirely the wrong criteria. The truth is, I don't get the opportunity to visit the theater very often these days, but I do get to listen to film spotting on a regular basis. With that in mind, the real question is, if only one of these directors could be allowed to continue making movies, whose would I want to hear Adam and Josh talk about the most? Ooh. Whose movies generate the most interesting and entertaining arguments from our co-hosts? Clearly, the answer could only be Wes Anderson. So we haven't seen that. Uh, no, method an used interesting before. test to apply here as you go through the difficulty, the evilness of film spotting madness. And I wonder, Josh, if you applied this just very quickly to any matchups that you can think of throughout the course of film spotting madness, even maybe these final four, would that have changed your voting anyway if you voted on those grounds for this particular matchup? Any of them. I don't. Uh, I'd have to. Do go you back think it would look. change? I didn't think? think about it before, um, but I think on this particular matchup, which that you would be most curious to talk about or yeah, write about? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think Wes probably would offer the potential for a split more. Let's say that. That's true. Which isn't always the best no. conversations, but I think it can be interesting. I think there's a chance that you would dislike a Wes Anderson film more than there's a chance I would dislike a Coen Brothers you film. You are correct about that. And we know you're not going to dislike a Coen Brothers film. Probably so. not. <laughs> so my logic says using that method, maybe Wes would get my vote, Though, as he did originally. I did not go for Burn After Reading. So there are exceptions. Really? So there are exceptions to and the Coen Brothers rule. Really good. Mm, of course you think that. See, we could have had a nice fight about Burn After Reading. The Coen Brothers were my answer, and they'd still be my answer because I just feel like they consistently give me more to chew on than Wes Anderson does. But I know a lot of people found just as much to wrestle with in Grand Budapest Hotel as they do in most Coen Brothers films. Our final comment comes to us from Billy Ray Bruton, who says it was always going to boil down to Anderson v. Anderson, and it's time to see which maestro reigns supreme. If it's the other Anderson, I vow to never listen to this podcast again. Okay, maybe not that, but something. (laughs) I think he's saying he's going to be very upset when we tell him that the final matchup is, in fact... Paul Thomas Anderson, not Wes Anderson, versus the Coen brothers. I think that is what he's saying. And unfortunately, that is what it's ending up to be. Coen's won with 70% of the vote. 70 to 30. That's a whooping. Did not expect that. No. Rob added, it's painfully obvious that Adam made this bracket. He's clearly (laughs) hoping the admittedly excellent Coens knock the wonderful Wes Anderson off before he comes after Adam's beloved PTA. Between this and last year's Fassbender win, I think Josh should do the seeding next year. Josh, you up for that? Rob, I don't have the fortitude. Let me no, tell you, you don't. I do not. <laughs> I'd love may, to see that. This may be true, but it's only because I pass out from exhaustion Josh's, during the madness discussions. Yeah, Josh's seating method would be taking all the names, maybe throwing them into a hat, picking them out one by one, and there you go. Yeah, that sounds that sounds good to me. You know what would be great about that? We'd be done in 30 seconds. <laughs> yes, we would. You're right. But that would spoil all the fun that Sam and me had. Josh, that's true. And who would want to do that? But on a semi-serious note, I did think about this. If Paul Thomas Anderson wins, and I would say it's a big if at this point, actually. Yeah, it's it's up for grabs. If he wins, then it will be the second year in a row through two years of Film Spying Madness where the number one seed and, you could say, my choice, won it all. Mm -hmm. And it does make you think, okay, well then, is it about really being the number one seed? I mean, somehow, almost whoever you put there, is that what's affecting this? Is the seating driving this whole thing? And the only thing I will say, because as you can imagine, I've thought about this a lot. At the end of it, that number one seed still had to go through, in this case, Paul Thomas Anderson, 
Duncan Jones, Spike Jones, Christopher Nolan, Martin Scorsese, and potentially the Coen brothers. I don't think you can chalk it up to the seating, Josh. Maybe I'm just getting defensive, but the number one seed may have a little bit of an easier route, but at the end of it, they're going to still have to go through some monsters that are going to give people fits. And I don't think it really is about the seating, but that's just my take. Well, and the truth is, I mean, Sam has just as much a hand in the seating as you do. That's and true. it comes down to the votes at the end of the day. It does. So it comes. That's what I'm saying. It comes <laughs> down to the votes. Those were the choices. And at the end of it, it isn't about so much that I think PTA is the best filmmaker out there. That is where I currently sit. But the way the seating was done was, of course, to try and predict what film spotting listeners would think. Right. It just so happens that we match up in this case. And if you just want to throw out all of this, you could go the Jeffrey Post route, who said, as Jason Siegel's David Foster Wallace says in the end of the tour, this is nice. This isn't real. <laughs> Write in your vote for Yorgos Lanthimos anarchy. What? This isn't real? This doesn't <laughs> really not... affect the real world? So there it is. Your championship matchup, the Cone Brothers versus Paul Thomas Anderson. If you want an update on how our brackets are doing, Myself, Josh, and Mike Merrigan, the founding father of Film Spotting Madness, all correctly predicted a PTA versus Cones final. Me and you, Josh, have PTA winning at all. Mm-hmm. Mike has the Cone Brothers winning. Sam had Quentin Tarantino advancing to the final against the Cones and has the Cone Brothers winning. And I got to say, I think right now it's Mike's to lose. I really do think just the way they've run through everybody so far. 70 to 30 here in this final matchup against Wes Anderson, who I thought had a legitimate shot of winning it all. I think the Coen brothers are probably going to win. I think that there are enough people out there, Josh, like Kate, who have that type of frustrating experience with PTA and they don't have it consistently with the Coen brothers. Yeah, I think that's going to win out. More importantly for me, though, is uh, translate this. What does this mean? We had talked at some point about the loser of this prediction bracket, having to watch Adam Sandler's Ridiculous Six. Right. Uh, how am I looking for, for losing where I have to watch that? That's my main concern at this point. Well, since we pretty much picked the same, though actually you lost a couple more along the way, you really are potentially going to finish in dead last. <laughs> I think that you're... But will you come over and watch yeah, it with me? Yeah, I will. Okay, thank I you. I totally will. If you want to play along... Even though none of this is real, you can vote now at filmspotting.net. Our website is where you vote. You can see all the matchups, and you'll see a link there to the full bracket as well. When you vote, you can leave a comment. We might read it on air. If you do, please let us know where you are listening from. Adam, I know you were scrambling to finish your top five this week, but I'm afraid it's time. Wooderson's not getting any younger. Our favorite Richard Linklater scenes are next. Stay with us. Just in time. Found me just in time before you came. My time was running low. I was lost. The losing dice were tossed. My bridges all were crossed. Nowhere to go. Now you're here, and I know. Found my way, click, 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 This is Ryan Johnson, the writer and director of Brick, and you are listening to Film Spotting. All right, I have an admittedly insane idea, but if I don't ask you this, it's just, uh, you know, it's going to haunt me the rest of my life. What? Um, I want to keep talking to you. 
You know, I have no idea what your situation is, but, uh, but I feel like we have some kind of, uh, connection, right? Yeah, me too. Yeah, right. Well, great. So listen, here's the deal. This is what we should do. You should get off the train with me here in Vienna and come check out the town. What? Come on, it'll be fun. You're listening to Film Spotting, and I think that was a recording, Josh, of the pitch I gave to you to join the show. Just get off the train with me right now. I forget. Why were we on a train? Where were we going? <laughs> I, I don't know. Okay. It's Chicago. Josh, there's trains everywhere. Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy there in that scene from Richard Linklater's Before Sunrise, a perfect transition into our top five Richard Linklater scenes. Of course, a tie-in with our review earlier in the show of the highly recommended by me. Sounds like certainly recommended by you, Josh. Everybody wants some. I joked that this was going to be so hard that the way I would approach it is just pick my favorite five moments from the Before trilogy. Turns out I did not go that route, though I came up with a modified version of it. How did you approach it? So this, as I said, I I thought this would probably be easy because Linklater makes films that hit you on such a gut emotional, personal level Mm -hmm. that um, they're just going to pop right up to you is what you remember. And in fact, I did go back and look at the reviews of his films that I've seen on, I wish I were a completist on him. I'm not, I'm close on my website. And sure enough, in every one, you know, I try to do this in most writing, but there's a particular scene that I pulled out and talked about, even if it was only a paragraph review, because that those specific moments are what he nails so well. So it was a matter of, you know, I, I pulled listeners on Facebook and and Twitter and um, got some good recommendations there too. But it was really a matter of just flipping through the memories and Mm -hmm. what has stuck with me from these intensely personal films he makes. All right. What's your number five? I'm going to start things off with a Wooderson scene. And it's my favorite of his from Dazed and Confused, L-I-V-I-N. It's when they're hanging out late at the football field and Matthew McConaughey's Wooderson, he's teasing Jason London's pink about this code of conduct paper that he's supposed to sign for the football team. Not to indulge in any alcohol, drugs, sex after 12, or any other illegal activity. Right, my shadow. Later, baby. Found that in your glove compartment, man. You know you're the third person who's given me this today? God. But what do you reckon you're gonna do? I don't know, man. I'll probably end up signing it. I just don't want to give in so easy. Man, it's the same bullshit they tried to pull in my day. You know, if it ain't that piece of paper, some other choice they're gonna try and make for you. You gotta do what Randall Pink Floyd wants to do, man. Let me tell you this. The older you do get, the more rules you're gonna try to get you to follow. (laughs) You just gotta keep living, man. L I V I N. In our Everybody Wants Some review, we talked about the ethos that Linklater's films have. And this is a variation on the speech that so many of his characters give. You see it sort of in Ethan Hawke in Before Sunrise. Jack Black even gives it in School of Rock. And it's all about conforming society, trying to squelch individuality or your own distinct dreams. Mm-hmm. It's not just Wooderson, though, that makes this scene so great. I love all the layers that are at work here. You know, as much as you want to say that a, sort of a screw the man attitude is the guiding ethos in Linklater's films, consider the other perspectives that are going on in, in this scene in particular. One of the girls hanging out with them, she makes fun of these star athletes for acting so oppressed. Right. She calls them the out school. on it. Yeah, yeah, they're the kings of the school. And so, you know, the movie even goes on to depict that, if anything, maybe they're the oppressors. Maybe they're the man, to the freshman at least. And Pink also reveals, here's an interesting distinction for me from Everybody Wants Some, is this yearning for adulthood here. 
here, right? Maybe even maturity is something that he's looking forward to. He has mm-hmm. that great line. If I ever call these the best years of my life, remind me to kill myself. Mm-hmm. And this is in the middle of a movie that's celebrating supposedly the best years of your life. So, yeah. so much going on here. Tons of nuance. Yeah, certainly one I strongly considered an honorable mention. And in fact, as I was watching it today, that line hit me where he says that about these being the best years of my life because it struck me for the first time that Wooderson is sitting right there on the field listening to that. And he's the one character who might actually take offense to that. He's trying to relive Yeah, those, he's trying to relive it. Those he's, years he every day. He doesn't want to ever leave. In yep. fact, he says, I'm thinking about going back to school. It's not <laughs> high school, but maybe a junior college or something. So yeah, he's trying to get back into it. Absolutely. Great pick there. For me, the way I came out this list was I went back to my letterboxed ranking I did when Boyhood came out of Linklater's films. And it has moved around and shifted a little bit since I originally posted it. But I realized that I had five films in that top tier of Linklater for me that are just absolutely, for me, great films, films I adore. Before Sunset, Before Sunrise, Dazed and Confused, Boyhood, and Before Midnight. And there was this second tier of really good movies that I really badly need to see again, all of them, but I enjoyed them and or gave them very positive reviews. Fast Food Nation, Waking Life, Slacker, A Scanner Darkly, and School of Rock. Then there's the next tier that I would say are a little bit more mixed bag for me. Not bad films, certainly, but movies that I probably didn't appreciate as much as many people do. Bernie. Me and Orson Welles, and then Tape, another film featuring Ethan Hawke. And I'd say they go in descending order there, Bernie being by far the best film. Me and Orson Welles, I can kind of take or leave. And Tape really did nothing for me. That leaves at the bottom the only absolute misfire from Linklater's career so far, the Bad News Bears remake. Hmm. Yeah. Two films of his I haven't seen, The Newton Boys and Suburbia. So not bad to be 14 out of 16, now 15 out of 17 with Everybody Wants Some, which I slot in right there at number six behind Before Midnight. So what I decided to do was not only pick from the Before trilogy, but pick from those five top-tier movies, pick my favorite scenes. And by the end of it, Josh... I'll be honest, I had to go with two from one of those films. I ended up leaving one of them out, actually, because I love the film and I love these moments so much. And the film that has two scenes is my number five, Before Sunset, and it's the car scene where they've been walking after meeting at the bookstore, Jesse and Celine, and then he has a car there that's supposed to take him to the airport, ultimately, and they drive around for a little bit before they ultimately get off and go on their way. This is the moment where things get real. At this point... As a viewer, I'm enjoying their conversation. I'm enjoying just seeing these two characters be on screen again and seeing them see each other. They're kind of talking around up to this point, the fallout from their brief encounter in the previous movie. And it's this great example of how Linklater can really build momentum in a scene and kind of shift things on you tonally because as she reveals more and more about her current relationship and her past relationships, she gets a little bit more agitated and then she finally confesses it. You know... It's not even that. I was, I was fine until I read your f- book. It stirred shit up, you know. It reminded me how genuinely romantic I was, how I had so much hope in things, and now it's like, I don't believe in anything that relates to love. I don't feel things for people anymore. In a way, I put all my romanticism into that one night, and I was never able to feel all this again, like. Somehow this night took things away from me and I expressed them to you and you took them with you. It made me feel cold, like if love wasn't for me. I, I, don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. So the part that always really gets me there is when she says the line about how she put all her romanticism into that one night and she doesn't think she can recapture it. Hawk 
just almost touches her on the leg to try to comfort her in that moment, but realizes that she may not need that in that moment. And even if she does, he's not the guy yeah, right now that right. to give it to her. And he can't touch her. And she doesn't even notice that he tries. And as the conversation goes on and she's lamenting more and more what's been lost, how she isn't this person she once was, he then goes back at her with, you say all that, but you don't even remember us having sex. And when she says, of course I remember... I melt in that scene just like Hawk does at that revelation because there is this kind of friction between them in this scene that proves there's truly something there. Like this movie isn't just going to be a nostalgia trip or about them catching up on what they've been doing in the interim. There is still something between them that has to be reckoned with or it wouldn't stir up those kind of emotions. Yeah, it's it's the spark scene, right, where, yeah. where it does uh, take that next step. My number four is coming from one of your mixed bag films, actually. It's uh, Jack Black singing with the car stereo in Bernie. There are a lot of good moments in that movie. The, you know, it's it's a Linklater there film are. that I, I like quite a bit initially, but it really has only grown on me. This is based on a true crime story. Jack Black plays the title character. He's this genuinely sweet, uh, likely gay, deeply religious assistant funeral director in this small Texas town. He ends up befriending a widow played by Shirley MacLaine, and that has tragic results. Bernie is, as a character, this guy is just a mystery. You just have constant questions about him. What's underneath this insistently cheery facade? What are his true feelings for Marjorie? That's the McLean character. You know, basically you're wondering, maybe because we know the context, the real world context, but does this guy have a dark side and when are we going to get a hint of it? Well, you would say no, he doesn't have a dark side based on this one single take scene. It's about two minutes long. Bernie's just driving in his car and he's singing along to the hymn, Love Lifted Me on the stereo. Like the times Bernie sings in church, this is a genuinely heartfelt musical performance mm-hmm. by Black. I yeah, mean, I remember us talking not, about that sequence yeah, a lot. He's not doing his School of Rock shtick. I mean, mm-hmm. I like School of Rock a lot, and I, I think Black's very funny when he does the musical comedy. But this is taking the music seriously. It's suggesting that the song is something that really matters to Bernie. And so considering what happens later in the film... This moment of devotion, it, it really only adds to, to that mystery of, of who is this Bernie T. Yeah, another great choice. My number four is my dazed and confused Wooderson scene. And if we've already heard the L-I-V-I-N scene, then listeners can probably predict where I'm going to go. That's what I love about these high school girls, Josh. And it isn't the scene, as I recall, that we're directly introduced to Wooderson. We've already seen him before, but it's, I think, our introduction to the full glory that is Wooderson in that scene where he's standing with the Jason London character, the Wiley Wiggins character, and I don't have the other character, his name in front of me, but the friend to Jason London, the fellow football player, and they're standing outside the Emporium. That line is one of the most quotable and quoted movie lines ever. So right there, it gets some points. But I also always kind of loved about it how he steps out of line to deliver his line like he's standing there talking to the guys and then the girl walks by and then he just kind of walks forward almost like he's on a stage Mm -hmm. it's this very theatrical moment and that always stuck out to me and then over the weekend i did watch the Linklater documentary that was made about him it's called 21 years and it's look it's not very good it was available on demand it's fine i should say actually if you want to spend 78 minutes looking back on the films of Linklater. 
it's good. It's not going to give you a whole lot of really in-depth insight, but they talk about that scene in McConaughey, who truly is as fun to listen to talk about playing Wooderson oh, as he is it. playing Wooderson. Yeah. He explains that what was kind of going through his mind at that point was the fact that he doesn't see Wooderson as expressing that to the guys next to him or anybody else. He's kind of not talking to anybody else in that moment. He's talking to the cosmos. Yeah. You know, it's his proclamation to the universe. And just with Wooderson, the ratio of perceived wisdom to actual wisdom is so vast <laughs> that it makes him truly one of the most memorable cinematic characters ever. And McConaughey's a genius, and that's where we discovered it. So that's my number four. So you're a freshman, right? Yeah. So tell me, man, how's this year's crop of freshman chicks look? <laughs> what, you're gonna end up in jail sometime really soon, I know that. Fact. No, man. Yeah. No, man, I tell you. Yeah. That's what I love about these high school girls, man. I get older, they stay the same age. <laughs> Well, speaking of lines that you instantly remember from Linklater's films, I've got one here for number three. Baby, you're going to miss that plane. Oh, man. We're here in Before Sunset. It's This is one of the great seduction scenes in movie history, I think, because it's just it's so wily and underplayed here uh, by Julie Delpy. So she, Celine, and Jesse, they've come back to her apartment. And this is despite the fact that he has to catch that plane. They're going to sit down, hang out, listen to Nina Simone. And Celine describes seeing her in concert and then does this sultry impersonation of the performance as as Jesse sits on the couch and he's I think you used this word earlier melting right yeah he's just melting there what's great about it is it's part sultry and part really silly well it's her it's it's absolutely in character with her and she's talking about because what do they share one of the things they share is a love of music Mm -hmm. right this has been a through line and she's talking about Simone as a performer here so it's another link later conversation about music she's making good points and at the same time what is she doing and the goofiness is part of this she's slowly reeling him in right ever so slowly <laughs> she was so great. <laughs> she was so funny in concert. She, she would, uh, she would be right in the middle of a song and then, you know, stop and and uh, and walk from the piano all the way to the edge of the stage, like really slowly. And she start talking to someone in the audience. Oh yeah, baby. Oh yeah. Mhm. I love you too. <laughs> and then she'd walk back, took her time, no hurry. You know. I really like in this scene too where Linklater fades out before there's any consummation. You know, Celine just tells Jesse, using her supposed Nina Simone voice, that he's going to miss the plane. And then she keeps dancing to herself slowly as if she's not in a rush. She's confident about what's going to happen, doesn't need to hurry to get there. Fade to black, perfect. Yeah. Yeah, it is perfect. My number three is from Before Sunrise, the first film in the trilogy. And wow, was this really hard to pick only one scene. But the one I ultimately landed on is the fake phone call scene at the little cafe. And you were just talking about how Linklater sometimes has these characters engage in conversations about performances. He also likes to occasionally have great scenes that are exhibiting performances. They are about characters performing an extra layer beyond what the actors are doing in the scene. But film has always struck me. It's the great revealer. Just watching as an audience member, you're watching other human beings experience things 
that we experience too, or in many cases, things we'll never experience. And here, it's the simulation of a phone call, talking to a friend on the phone. We've all done it a million times, but they put on this little performance with each other where she's calling her friend to explain that she's not going to be making it back to Paris on time. Don't be waiting for her, basically. She's met this guy. Allô? Hmm? Vanice et Céline. Ah. Comment ça va? Ça va bien. Et toi? <laughs> Il m'est arrivé quelque chose d'incroyable. Uh, I've been working on my English recently. Will you want to talk in English just for laughs? Yeah, okay. That's a good idea. Um, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it for lunch today. I'm sorry. I I met a guy on the train and I got off with him in Vienna. We're still there. Are you crazy? Probably. He's Austrian? He's from there? No, 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 no. He's passing through here, too. He's American. He's going back home tomorrow morning. Why'd you get off the train with him? Well, he convinced me. I mean, actually, I was, <laughs> I was ready to get off the train with him after talking to him a short while. He was so sweet, I couldn't help it. There's a tremendous amount of charm in Ethan Hawke, first of all, as he suggests that they should maybe talk in English, that he's been working on his English, mm-hmm. and maybe they should try that out so he can better understand her. And it's only in this little charade does he get to ask the question he really wants to know. He gets to ask, why did you get off the train with him? And she answers, of course. And it's also where she admits, I think that's when I fell for him. So she admits only through the course of this whole scene that truly is a scene that she has fallen in love with him. And maybe she's not being totally genuine, but there's enough there that you can see it in Hawk's face that he knows he's got her. He knows he's got enough. And that expression as he watches her talk, it's as if Hawk is saying, just feed me more. Just keep giving me more of this because he is enjoying every bit of it. And the one thing I didn't have time to look up, and I'm sure listeners will set me straight on this, is during the conversation, she says that they had kissed. And he acts very surprised. And I can't remember in the chronology of the movie if they had kissed Mm, at that point or not. Either way, it's her chiding him and making fun of him for how he kisses or... It's another great reveal that, oh, this is possible, right? Like, they haven't done it yet, but she's considered it as a possibility. And that's another revelation for him. And then, of course, it's his turn to have the phone call calling back home. But it's only through this performance that they are really being who they really are somehow, that they're really exposing themselves in something that is otherwise fake. And you talk about through lines, the end of Before Midnight, the end of the trilogy, is another scene where we end on a bit of hope, where the two characters are acting out something. They're doing a little bit of yeah. playing for each other and pretending, talking about this time machine. Yeah, they well, you know, they, they haven't achieved that intimacy yet. So the construct allows them to get there. And it also fast forwards things, right? Because mm-hmm. this is all going to happen in a matter of hours. And uh, how will it believably happen? Well, well, this makes it seem like something that actually could bubble up between them. My number two comes from Boyhood, and it's Patricia Arquette's goodbye to Mason, her son. I talked about Arquette uh, in our review giving the linchpin performance for me in Boyhood. Just the way she's she's always working at the movie's edges. She's avoiding any cliches as this stalwart single mother. And what we get then is uh, a woman who's who's fully formed and also has this individual life journey that parallels Mason's own. So we're following her as much as we're following him. And I think we realize that in this scene. When we get to the end here between her and Mason as he's packing to leave for college, she just breaks down. You know what I'm realizing? My life. 
life is just gonna go like that. There's series of milestones. Getting married, having kids, getting divorced. The time that we thought you were dyslexic when I taught you how to ride a bike. Getting divorced again, getting my master's degree, finally getting the job I wanted. Sending Samantha off to college, sending you off to college. You know what's next, huh? It's my funeral. And I think I found this scene so moving because as she's cataloging these milestones in her life and true to the point of the story, she's also listing some mundane memories. We realize that Linklater's found a way with the strategy and structure of this film, making it in segments over 12 years to make us feel as if we've lived each and every one of those years with the family, specifically with Mason and I think with Patricia Arquette's character too. So for me, you know, this is the moment where the cumulative power of boyhood, I think that's really how that movie works. There mm-hmm. isn't any grandstanding scene. No. But the cumulative power of it hit me with a thud in the chest for oh, this one. Man, it's so devastating. And if I didn't know for sure that you were going to choose it, it very well could have been my number one. But I'm pretty happy with where I came out instead, Josh. Before we get there, my number two is my second scene from Before Sunset. And it's, guess what, Josh? It's the ending. We're going to have some overlap here because for me, you talk about culmination. When I wrote about this movie upon rewatching it on Letterboxd, I said, is it just me or are Jesse's repeated attempts to delay his trip to the airport the equivalent of the knight's gamesmanship in the seventh seal, a condemned man's maneuvers to stave off death by prolonging the sublime? And it's hard to get more sublime than Julie Delpy and Nina Simone. And those maneuvers, they finally pay off as he ends up in her apartment. And I do think there's something about just the space there, Josh, and the intimacy of it that we've seen them walking around Vienna all night. We've seen them walking around Paris. There's something different when now they're not just in her city, but they're actually in her apartment together, right? And just them being there. And then, of course, as you said, the sexiness to an extent, but also the goofiness of her Nina Simone impression really stands out. And then as she delivers that line, baby, you are going to miss that plane. The slow track in on Hawk's face. Again, really subtle. It is a camera move. Mm -hmm. He isn't just plopping the camera down and letting it play out in a long take. And yet it's still kind of invisible the first time you see it. But when you rewatch it, you see just how subtle and graceful that track in is. As he says, I know it's gorgeous. And you're right. The ambiguity it ends on, it's a happy ending. You have to see it as somewhat of a happy ending while at the same time acknowledging that like before sunrise, it is still ending on an ambiguous note. It doesn't tell us that they are going to live necessarily happily ever after. We're still left in that same state of wanting to know what is going to happen to them that we were left with at the end of that film. And that's why I think so many of us were excited nine years later for before midnight. And of course, fits in with what I was saying too about performance. It's more of them performing for each other. But yeah, I mean, one of the best endings I can think of. It had to be on this list. Let's stick with the Before Trilogy for my number one. It's the listening booth scene way at the beginning from Before Sunrise. It seems maybe uncharacteristic to choose as my number one scene this single take with nobody talking. Because as we mentioned, you know, Linklater's so good at conversations and discussions Mm -hmm. in his movies. Mm -hmm. But boy... This, I think maybe it's because it's such a stark contrast to all of that and really what so much of Before Sunrise is built upon that it stands out and that I appreciate it. Here they're in a record store and Jesse and Celine squeeze into this listening booth and they put on Kath Bloom's 1984 song, Come Here.
We get, I think, about 80 seconds here of sustained flirtation. There's tension. There's intimacy. There's uncomfortable moments as they're not quite sure what to do in this close space together. But they're still haltingly exchanging these smiles and glances. And, and boy... I don't know if the documentary got into this at all, but I would love to know how many takes they may have done of that Mm. or how much of that was, you know, this whole movie has the feel of improvisation, but these glances are so perfectly timed. And yet it's not. Hawk would tell you it's very scripted. Really? Okay. Okay. Well, it seems that makes sense because when one looks and the other looks away, it's it's just you do wonder point about the physicality and how scripted that is and how rehearsed. Absolutely. I was too. And that's a scene, Josh, that I was reminded of watching that documentary 21 years. And I thought for sure, oh, I'm going to throw Josh here. I'm going to come up with a stunner of a scene for my top five that he's never going to remember from before oh, sunrise. No way. And you pick the listening booth. The, you know what? It's the still I grabbed for for the review I wrote, wow. which isn't that long. But that that was the moment. So I just pulled that up. I was like, oh, yeah, that's well, where I'm going. You were dead on with that scene. You know what? I like how it ends, too. Speaking of how before sunset comes to a great ending here. Linklater cuts away from the booth while the song is still playing. So he lets the music go Mm -hmm. on. And then we see Jesse and Celine back out on the Vienna streets. And it just sustains what was a wonderful moment. But also that's, you know, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to sustain this, this brief, these brief hours that they have together. And this, this little Mm -hmm. sequence does that in miniature. Yeah. It's amazing. It it really is probably the best or second best scene in Before Sunrise. And the two things that really stick out to me about it is the way that Hawk reacts in one specific moment. There are all these awkward glances and flirty moments and them almost coming together. And there's one point about halfway through the scene where Hawk is looking at her and it somehow doesn't feel cliche at all, but it's the moment we've seen in movies a million times where you think he's about to move in Mm -hmm. and actually get the kiss. And she turns to look at him in that moment and the recoil, the no, I wasn't about to do that kind of look on his face is just priceless. I mean, it's such a beautiful acting moment. But what else stood out to me, and I hope I saw this right on YouTube, the way I looked at it, what really heightens that scene, everything about it, is the fact that it is a single take, but I'm pretty sure it was shot with someone holding the camera in the room, not on a tripod. There is a camera person in that booth with them. And so the camera is not urgently or certainly violently moving, but it is moving. Hmm. It gives you the sense, almost like a documentary, of you being in that space with those two characters. And it heightens so much just seeing that camera move a little bit. My number one scene, Josh, is from the movie Boyhood. And I wish that I could wax eloquently about it. The reality is, it's the dialogue that I know I spent some time on when we reviewed this movie, one of the many scenes like the goodbye scene that stood out to me. But also it's my number one because I think it truly sums up what I've learned about Linklater, if I've learned anything from reviewing Everybody Wants Some and putting together this list, what really cuts through the heart of his work. And you touched on all those things that make up his ethos. But you didn't mention what I think is maybe the most overriding theme in that ethos. And it's the notion that magic is in the everyday, that Magic is in reality, not in fantasy or the types of moments we try to fabricate out of reality, looking for meaning. The meaning is there if you'll just if you'll just look for it. You'll just open yourself up to it a little bit. And where that is really articulated so eloquently is in Boyhood when Ethan Hawke, again, is talking to Mason, the dad, and his son. And he's fairly young at this point. I want to say maybe 10 or 12. And 
he asks him, he says, Dad, there's no magic in the world, right? There's no real magic. And Hawk has that kind of answer that, you know, maybe only a dad in a Richard Linklater movie could come up with. He's the dad I kind of wish I could be where my kids ask me a serious question like that and I have the perfect answer. But he lays it out for him. He says, what makes you think that elves are any more magical than something like a whale? You know what I mean? What if I told you a story about how underneath the ocean there was this giant sea mammal that used sonar and sang songs and it was so big that its heart was the size of a car and you could crawl through the arteries. I mean, you think that's pretty magical, right? Yeah. I think if you watch all of his films, more than anything, Linklater is about trying to make us not take for granted those things that just go by every day. And I think that's articulated as well in Everybody Wants Some, but it's certainly at the core of so much of Boyhood. Yeah, and what's so beautiful about that scene is that it's embedded exactly in that moment. It mm-hmm. doesn't come across as a thesis statement at all. No. It's the interaction between father and son as you're talking about. This father and son, a- you believe Exactly, it. exactly. So it just works beautifully. Those are our top five Richard Linklater scenes or moments. Josh, did you have any honorable mentions? I thought about the, uh, it's almost a Kiarostami-like opening car scene of Before Midnight, totally. when we suddenly reconnect with Jesse and Celine, and they're now married, and mm-hmm. we, we immediately sense this new tenor of caution, I think, that's there in their exchanges. You're number one. It was probably my number six, I would say. I think it is a good description of Linklater's style overall. Really funny scene in Dazed and Confused, almost a throwaway one, but the girls in the bathroom giving this feminist deconstruction of Gilligan's Island mm-hmm. just cracks me up. And then A Scanner Darkly, you mentioned in your rankings yeah. there. It's one I like as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, visually interesting with the rotoscoping animation going on. That has a single take where Keanu Reeves is walking into this, um, I think it's the drug house, and we just follow him there until he goes and flops on a couch. And just the camera work is very disorienting in a way, working alongside the rotoscoping that just captures the whole air of that uneasy film. Mm -hmm. Well, just sticking with the five movies I mentioned that I was focusing on, obviously the listening booth scene from Sunrise, the ending and the beginning scene you mentioned, Josh, from Before Midnight, the ending being the This Is Real Life bit. Dazed and Confused, I had your L-I-V-I-N scene, but also my little moment that cracks me up every time I see it, and again, is just another thing Linklater would think to capture. It's during the party scene at the end of Days and Confused. It's just one of the snapshot kind of moments that Linklater captures where Cole Hauser, the actor, is sitting on the hood of a car with other people too, and he just decides for no apparent reason that he's going to stand up. And he kind of stands up, and it looks like he's almost stretching in a way that he's saying to the world, you know, I'm I'm a god, like I own this place. <laughs> and he stands up and as soon as he gets up and raises his hands, he immediately realizes he has to sit down. You know, like he's just too drunk to actually yeah. stand up and he's got to sit down. And then from boyhood, the end scene sees the moment. And of course, as you touched on, I thought there'd be more. And certainly there are a lot more scenes and moments we could have considered for this top five Richard Linklater scenes. Please send us your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. How about some voicemails? We'll always take those at 312-264-0744. We might even feature it on an upcoming show. You can find Film Spotting on Facebook and we're on Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over at our website, filmspotting.net, you can find 11 years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. 
While you're there, take part in Film Spotting Madness Director's Edition. 32 directors, only one survives to direct another day. Doesn't matter if you've missed all the voting so far, you can vote for the winner. Championship round voting is live. Paul Thomas Anderson versus the Cone Brothers. Sort of a tag team situation, I guess. I don't know. That's, if that's true. Two against one. Fair. I mean, <laughs> I think you and Sam need to have a long discussion about whether or not that's fair. Oh, that's going to happen. If you haven't already, we encourage you to check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts, Film Spotting SVU, and The Next Picture Show. You can find both in iTunes. New episodes just went up for both shows. SVU talking about Ho Shao Shen's The Assassin, The Next Picture Show, Breaking Down, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and Midnight Special, a comparison that came up in our discussion of Midnight Special and probably every review of Midnight Special, but you know they will dive in only the way they can. Out in limited release, The Invitation, the new film from director Karen Kusama, who directed Girl Fight and Eon Flux. While attending a dinner party, a man thinks his ex-wife and her new husband may have sinister intentions for their guests. This is getting a lot of good buzz, Josh. I want to see this one. I do too. I know it's available on demand as well right now. Out in wide release, Barbershop, The Next Cut, Criminal, Memories and skills of a deceased CIA agent are implanted into an unpredictable and dangerous convict. Kevin Costner, Gary Oldman, Tommy Lee Jones, and gal Wonder Woman Godot star. Which one of those would have to be the convict if you were actually going to see this? (laughs) Uh, Gal Godot? Yeah, that's probably the right answer. (laughs) The Jungle Book also out, currently rocking... 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. That'll probably change by the time this show comes out or by the time Josh actually gets around to reviewing it. Come (laughs) on. Maybe not, but maybe it's going to be family weekend at the movies, Josh. Are you thinking about it? I am not around this weekend, so probably I will have to skip The Jungle Book, but you go and let me know. I love The Jungle Book, the original, so we'll see what Favreau does with it. Next week, it is going to be our Alien Sacred Cow review, and we'll announce the winner of Film Spotting Madness and... Perhaps some thoughts on The Jungle Book, maybe just an Adam recommends. And we are hoping to share my interview with Green Room and Blue Ruin writer-director Jeremy Sunye. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Just one shot at this? Yeah. Is there, there's a well, lot no, of Well, no, not necessarily. I may need multiple takes. <sighs> okay. Got to do some exercises here. This is this is a performance, Josh, okay? So just such ready. suspense. Okay, there we go. Josh, man. You ever wonder what you'd be doing if you weren't doing this show?